Section 22 of Henry II by Louis Francis Saltzman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 11 The English Nation under Henry II, Part 2. Southampton was at this time the chief mercantile port of England, preeminent for its valuable wine trade, thanks alike to the natural advantages of its situation relative to Normandy and the wine-exporting districts of the West, and to its proximity to the royal city of Winchester. Although London had already outdistanced Winchester in wealth, the latter was still the home of the treasury, the rival of Westminster as the king's official residence, and a leading centre of trade. The great fair of St. Giles drew merchants from all over England, and from foreign lands to Winchester, to sell their fine-worked stuffs to the king's purveyors for his royal robes, or to buy the coarse woollen cloth of local manufactures, for Winchester with its guilds of weavers and fullers was a great seat of the cloth industry, most of its products being the coarse burl cloth of which two thousand ells were purchased and sent to Ireland in 1171 for the troops. A cheaper and coarser cloth seems to have been made in Cornwall, as on several occasions Cornish burls in large quantities were bought for the king's almoner. The output of English cloth was altogether more remarkable for quantity than quality. Guilds of weavers existed in 1156 at Winchester, London, Lincoln, Oxford, Huntington, and Nottingham, all being of sufficient importance to pay yearly to the king from forty shillings to six pounds, but their productions were for the most part poor and coarse, with the notable exception of the scarlet cloths of Lincoln, which are found fetching the prodigious price of six shillings eight pence the ell. So far as there were exceptions to the general lack of quality, they were no doubt due to foreign, especially to Flemish influence. At the time of the expulsion of the Flemings after the rebellion of 1173, there are numerous entries on the pipe rolls recording seizures of wool and woad belonging to Flemings. The dyers of Worcester are recorded as owing twelve pounds to the king's Flemish enemies, and there is other evidence to show the presence of these skilled cloth workers throughout the country. For foreign trade, statistics and even such details as would permit of broad generalizations are lacking. There was no imposition of customs for revenue purposes by the central authorities. Each town, whether seaport or inland market, had its own schedule of customs and octroi dues, but they were only under the control of the crown in so far that the king could by charter exempt persons from the payment of such dues throughout the realm. Such exemptions were amongst the most valued franchises of the barons of the Cinque Ports, the men of a few privileged boroughs, and the tenants of certain great religious houses. A trading privilege of particular interest for its bearing upon the development of London under Norman influence was the right of the citizens of Rouen to a port or anchorage in the Thames close to the city walls, which was confirmed to them by Henry II in 1174. A still more striking instance of the connection of two ports was Henry's grant of Dublin to the Burgesses of Bristol, assuring to them a virtual monopoly of the Irish trade, which they appear to have previously shared with Chester. 
the monopoly of the irish trade with normandy being in the same way assured to rouen as a whole henry's policy towards the towns and trading communities especially in the earlier years of his reign was liberal and encouraging we find him granting the customs of york to the burgesses of scarborough in eleven fifty five the liberties of london and winchester to the men of gloucester and the customs of lincoln to the burgesses of coventry at a later date guilds merchant and trade guilds were confirmed in their privileges at oxford nottingham lincoln and elsewhere and the formation of others licensed with the growth of trade other unauthorized guilds sprang up and in eleven eighty no fewer than nineteen such adulterine guilds were reported in london alone five of them being connected with london bridge the famous stone bridge built in eleven seventy six of these london guilds the only four definitely identified with special trades were those of the goldsmiths spicers butchers and cloth workers the others being no doubt social and religious societies of a less specialized composition side by side with the growth of manufactures developed the exploitation of the mineral wealth of england the lead mines of derbyshire yorkshire and shropshire were being worked and the valuable silver-bearing lead mines of carlisle which were farmed in eleven fifty eight for one hundred marks were bringing in one hundred and fifty marks at the end of the reign having fluctuated between five hundred marks in eleven sixty six and no yield at all after the border wars of eleven seventy three and four at the other end of the kingdom were the rich tin mines of cornwall and devon iron was worked in the northern counties and to some extent in northamptonshire but the industry had not yet attained any degree of importance in the weald of sussex and kent and the forest of dean enjoyed a practical monopoly of the southern iron trade tin was undoubtedly exported to the continent lead we read of as sent by king henry for the use of the monks of clairvaux but it is doubtful whether it was to any extent an article of commerce and iron was almost certainly not exported by a curious inversion of later practice the chief exports from england in early times were the raw materials of wool and hides and a certain amount of foodstuffs amongst the latter were no doubt cheeses which had already found a market in flanders in the eleventh century and possibly ale for which england and especially kent was celebrated in eleven sixty eight we find fifty-three hogsheads of ale sent to the king in normandy and that this drink was appreciated by foreigners we may conclude from its having occupied so prominent a part amongst the gifts which becket carried with him on his famous embassy to the french court while ale was the national drink no small quantity of wine was grown in england vineyards existing in the southern counties from kent to hereford and at least as far north as cambridgeshire and references to cider are also numerous the preference given to cider over kentish ale was one of the charges of luxury brought by gerald de barry against his monastic entertainers at the cathedral priory of christchurch canterbury how far the accusations of excess in food and in other matters brought by gerald and by walter mapp against the monks and in particular against those of the cistercian order could be sustained is a question difficult to answer 
both men bore personal grudges against the cistercians both preferred a scandalous story or a witty jest to strict accuracy and gerald especially was utterly unscrupulous in the abuse of his enemies at the same time some of the little details in the stories told seem to support their accuracy and there is evidence that in many cases abuses had crept in and ascetic ideals been relaxed with a rapidity which is astonishing when it is remembered that bernard of clairvaux the founder of the order had died only a year before henry ascended the throne one of gerald's tales relates how an abbot of one of the english cistercian houses hospitably regaled the king not knowing him with a drinking bout initiating him into the mysteries of prill and vril the private toasts or drinking cries used in the monastery in place of the secular wash hail and drink hail and how henry when the abbot subsequently came to court welcomed him with prill and made him repeat the performance to his utter confusion and the intense amusement of the nobles the possibility of this being a true story is increased when we read in the cistercian annals a generation later that in twelve fifteen the abbot of beaulieu was deposed because he behaved outrageously at table drinking hilariously in the presence of three earls and forty knights and that two years later the abbot of tintern drank ceremoniously solemniter with bishops and monks of the purely english order of gilbertines whose founder gilbert of sempringham died in eleven eighty one gerald speaks favourably though deprecating their system of double convents for nuns and canons but it is only of the austere carthusians and gramontanes that he writes with whole-hearted commendation that his praise was justified is confirmed by the exceptional favour shown to these two orders by henry who troubled little about other religious save the nuns of fontevraud and the military order of the templars gluttony and drunkenness were indeed vices in their addiction to which the english both clergy and laity compared unfavourably with their welsh and irish contemporaries william fitzstephen in his famous description of london gives the immoderate drinking of fools as one of the two plagues of the city the degree of luxury then prevalent to table is indicated by his account of the public cook-shop on the river-bank near the wine-wharves where every variety of fish flesh and fowl roast meat baked meat stew and pasty was ever preparing hither ran the servants of those upon whose empty larders unexpected guests had descended here was store sufficient to satisfy an army of knights or a band of pilgrims here an epicure might call for sturgeon woodcock or ortolan it was a gay busy prosperous city ships of all nations loading and unloading crowds chaffering with the merchants and tradesmen whose stalls were congregated according to kind here the booths of the goldsmiths and here a street of cloth merchants here the grocers and here a row of cutlers while through the narrow irregular streets scattering purchasers and loafers would pass the retinue of some prelate or baron on his way to his town-house then there was the weekly excitement of the horse fair held outside the city walls on the flat fields of smithfield every one was there come to buy to sell or to look on and there were horses to suit every conceivable want 
at least if you accepted the word of their owners. There were ambling nags, unbroken colts of whose heels you had better be careful, stately chargers, sturdy pack-horses, mares with their foals, cart-horses, driving-horses, horses innumerable. But the fun really began when, with a sudden shouting, the crowd parted hastily and left a clear course down which thundered the chargers in mad race, scarcely needing the shouts and spurring of their boy jockeys to urge them to their utmost effort. And then there were the holidays, when the fields outside the city were thronged with students, chaffing each other and lampooning their teachers with apt latinity, young nobles from the court at Westminster, and apprentices from the city, while their elders looked on and grew younger with excitement as they watched them cock-fighting, ball-playing, or tilting, and as the day wore on the girls would come to the fore, and there would be song and dancing until the moon rose. Or the scene would shift to the river, where the boys standing in the bows of a boat would tilt at a shield suspended above the water, and win either the applause or more often the laughter of the watchers on the bridge and in the riverside houses, by their efforts to maintain their balance and avoid a ducking. And then in the winter, when the marshes were covered with ice, bone skates were in demand, and tilting on skates warmed the blood, even if it was responsible for rather a large number of broken heads and limbs. For those who were too old, too timid, or too dignified for such boisterous sports, there were the pleasures of hunting and hawking over the great preserves belonging to the city in Hertfordshire, Middlesex, and Kent. A gay city, but one whose gaiety was only too suddenly checked by an outbreak of fire, the second of Fitzstephen's plagues. With their wooden hovels, wooden booths, and primitive open hearths, the English towns were constant sufferers from fire. Becket's parents had been impoverished by a succession of fires, and in one year, 1161, London, Canterbury, Winchester, and Exeter were devastated. Next year, the booths of St. Giles' Fair at Winchester were burnt with all the merchandise in them, and in 1180, a fire beginning at the Mint destroyed the greater part of the unfortunate town of Winchester, Glastonbury was burnt in 1184, and Chichester in 1187, and these are only instances recorded for the magnitude of destruction wrought. Smaller outbreaks must have been of continual occurrence. The description of London, mutatis mutandis, would apply sufficiently well to other towns of the period, though in many of the smaller boroughs, the mercantile element must be almost eliminated and a large agricultural element introduced to render the picture even tolerably faithful but when we get outside the walls of the towns we meet with quite a different state of affairs here and there a castle or the chief seat of some powerful landowner would present us with a building of some architectural importance but in far the greater number of cases the chief house the manor would be a barn-like structure of one story, the main feature of which would be the hall or living-room with the massive beams of its open roof, blackened by the smoke from the fire burning on an open hearth in the centre of the hall. The chamber or sleeping apartment, a similar but smaller room connected with the first by a lobby or vestibule, would possibly be partitioned into cubicles, either by lath and plaster walls or by cloth hangings, 
the kitchen with brew-house wash-house dairy and other offices where such existed might form part of the main buildings or be in a block by themselves and there would be one or two barns with cart-houses stables cowsheds hen-houses pigsties and the miscellaneous appurtenances of a farm the roofs of the various buildings would be thatched and the windows unglazed closed with wooden shutters on the floor would be a layer of rushes not too frequently renewed and one or two trestle tables some benches and stools a cupboard and possibly a couple of massive chests would pretty nearly exhaust the catalogue of the furniture save for the wooden platters and bowls buckets and barrels in the kitchen near the manor-house as a rule would stand the church massive and dark its walls adorned with crudely realistic paintings and its stonework enriched with the strong barbaric mouldings of the period and hard by overshadowed by the tithe-barn would be the house of the parish priest little superior to the clusters of mud-huts in which the peasantry contrived to exist to obtain a true estimate of the position of the peasantry at this time it is essential to grasp the entirely different standard of life then prevalent comfort and happiness are mainly matters of comparison and at a time when the country gentleman was content with a simplicity which a modern artisan would scorn the labourer might well see no discomfort in conditions against which an irish peasant would protest a condition of servitude was no great burden in itself to those upon whose imaginations the theoretical beauty of liberty had not dawned the gradations between free and bond were so fine that it required a skilled lawyer to draw the line that separated them and in practice many freemen were worse off than the average villain if villainage legally bound the tenant to perform irksome service for his lord it morally bound the lord to provide for his tenant at the same time the services exacted from the villain were arduous in theory they were unlimited but in practice custom had already fixed their nature in most manners striking a rough average we may say that a villain as a rule had to work for his lord one day in every week for every five or ten acres that he held and in addition to put in a number of extra days during the busy and critical weeks of harvest and further occasional days for ploughing harrowing and sowing then there were occasions when he might be called upon to help in thatching the farm buildings carting manure repairing hedges carrying farm produce to market or fetching salt or such local requirements as the drying and salting of herrings for many of these extra services he had some return in the shape of a meal at the lord's cost but the demands upon his time were heavy and would have left him little opportunity to cultivate his own small holding if he had no sons or others to assist him the lot of the people villain landowner and burgess had improved under the wise rule of henry and even the great lords if shorn of their power were safe from the attacks of rivals and secure of their possessions so long as they remained loyal the seeds of the english constitution had been sown the english nation which had been nursed in part unwittingly by henry was to discover its own existence under his successors when his foreign policy failed and the connection between normandy and england was severed the relations between church and state were settled upon a firm basis and if the supremacy of the state for which henry had fought had to be abandoned the catholic church in england 
developed a consciousness of nationality and remained independent of rome in a degree quite exceptional when compared with the church on the continent as the effects of henry's policy were either evanescent and negligible or enduring and in the latter case easy to trace it is not hard to estimate the significance of his reign but to obtain a just estimate of the man himself is more difficult for the more intimate details we are largely dependent upon men who either bore him ill-will or more rarely were writing in a spirit of flattery but putting the evidence together we see a strong clear-headed man controlling his emotions but occasionally clearing off accumulations of irritation and annoyance by tremendous outbursts of mad rage a methodical man with a keen sense of justice but arbitrary and unscrupulous a skilled general who never engaged in warfare if it could be avoided a keen and restless sportsman with a sense of humour and a passion for literature a free-thinking adulterer with a genuine appreciation of purity and true religion a man who could manage the affairs of half a dozen principalities but could not rule his own house an acute judge of men who lavished affection and benefits upon ungrateful and unworthy sons a mass of contradictions in other words an entirely human man end of section twenty two recording by pamela nagami m d in encino california february twenty twenty one end of henry the second by lewis francis saltzman